bienvenue au podcast Vikingology, les arts et sciences de l'âge viking. Thank you. I do it in French. <laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, CJ from France. Mm -hmm. Barry from Portland, boring. David from Texas. I am in my grandfather's office and you can see... Uh, There's no shields on the wall. What's there's no gonna... shields, but there's a picture of my great-grandmother. Oh, nice. My great-grandfather. Oh, there we go. When he's young, when she's young, there's uh, cousins. Yeah, there's there's cool stuff in here. Grandfather's got an interesting, uh, interesting, had an interesting life. So and he's got a lot of mementos. But anyway. Cool. Hmm. Well, so you know what? I actually looked on the calendar. So David Zori is here from... Baylor University in Texas, and we're happy. He's friend of the show now because he's the first guy who's like a repeat Thank customer. You. Thank you. <laughs> and by the way, our first time with him, we did two episodes. Right, <laughs> and you know, I, I actually I looked at the calendar, and literally, it was one year ago to this very day, which is oh, odd. We planned but, it, right? Yeah, I guess that's kind of crazy, but yeah, so. The first time we have somebody back and um, people who pay attention to our Substack will have seen that we um, posted a, a few weeks ago something about David's new book. And so that's why we wanted to have you on again so that you could tell us all about it, because I know you must feel like, you know, postpartum or something. <laughs> It's like, it's like giving birth and writing a book like this. It was a long process. I, I wouldn't want to compare it to childbirth, but I, I, it definitely took longer. And I've probably been thinking about and working on this longer than my daughter has been alive. So it, uh, and she's nine. So it took, it took me, took me a long time. I'm delighted to see it out. It's just nice to hold the, you know, physical copy after so long. Physical copy. Oh, yeah. oh yes. Thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah, so the this is um, Age of Wolf and Wind, and you'll explain to everyone what that means, but also then subtitle Voyages Through the Viking World, and this is uh, Oxford University Press, and they are generously providing a coupon for 30% off, which we will include in the show notes so people can take advantage of that, um, but so, okay, so for those who maybe didn't pay attention last year, just a little bit of introduction, right? So you are an archaeologist and historian at Baylor University. And as you and CJ were talking before we turned the cameras on, you've got sort of these two parts of your heritage and your life where on your mom's side, it's Danish and your dad's side, it's Italian. And you spend a lot of time writing and researching about Vikings. And, and then you've also spent a number of years now in digging in Italy so um anyways welcome back mr interesting thank you thank you, thank you. <laughs> i i um so i i'm a historical archaeologist i love the the medieval period and uh, what i've worked on most of course is the is the vikings and i was born in odense denmark odense so odin's sacrificial grove um and used to play basketball on one of the famous round Trelleborg style forts called Nunnebagen, which is currently in and buried underneath multiple layers of modern city. And then it's called Nunnebagen because it's a cloister. Nunne is, is Nun, uh, the Nun Hill. So if you were to dig through the Nun Hill cloister, you'd get to a, a round 
uh, fort from around 980 AD. And we can talk about that later, but those are some of the most interesting um, constructions in the Viking Age, I think, and the biggest public works project in all of the Viking Age at the end of the 10th century. So I sort of had the family connection to, to the Vikings already. Uh, we moved back and forth from from Denmark to the United States and spent all the summers in, in Italy, which is why also sometimes I'm pulled into Italian medieval archaeology as well. I think the most important question we need to ask you right now is, who do you root for in soccer? It's a tough one. And uh, I, you know, the, Bears. Change, changing the shirts depending on, you know, how the wind blows. But uh, I, I, I have to admit, because my, my son is obsessed with soccer now, that we're primarily Denmark fans because it's just extraordinary when they actually win something, you know. So that's that's exciting. And then 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 Italy and then and then the United States. So when my husband and I were just in Denmark in August, that was one of the things that we did was we in our little perch where we stayed in Odense, we were on the top floor of this building. So we kind of had a little bit of a, a view out by the harbor and towards the direction where the soccer stadium is. And we could see the lights all lit up. And so we actually watched on TV Odense play Aarhus. Uh, and you know, and they, felt, probably, they, they probably like, lost. They probably yeah. lost. They're just yeah. miserable. But Odense Ball Club is a soccer team we support too. And uh, yeah, we've been several times to watch games in, in Odense. Nice. So I think, I mean, for me, I love that, you know, and I, you and I spent time talking about this book a lot over the last couple of years and have had such a good time doing that. And um, I, I just, I find it so interesting because it's a book about Viking history, but also a book about how we know what we know. Um, so can you explain a little bit like about that and kind of the approach that you took with this? I can. So first I should say thank you, Terry, for working through this whole book with me, um, reading every chapter and helping me to edit it. So I really appreciated working with you, Terry, through this through this book. And just for those that saw the cover already, I also have to thank uh, Roberto Fortuna uh, in an interesting sort of parallel to my own life. The guy who took this picture works at the National Museum of Denmark, but he's an Italian named Roberto Fortuna. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I, I want to thank him too. So yeah, I am really fascinated by uh, interdisciplinary research, and I think that's going to be the the future of of discoveries within the Viking world. So mixing these three data sets um, of historical sources, so written texts, archaeological discoveries, and then new hard science techniques that are being applied to most eras of the past to a much higher degree everything from ancient dna to satellite imagery to ground penetrating radar this it's increasing our abilities to see into the past uh, by incredible by leaps and bounds so i think that the uh, one of the challenges then is to take these these three different types of data sets and put them together and that's a bit of a challenge because they come with totally different methodologies so you usually will have people that are trained in in one, but not equally in all three. And so that's a challenge. So getting the analysis correct first, uh, the disciplines and the methods for uh, on their own, and then putting them together. And, and so that's what 
what I tried to do in, in the book methodologically. You know, I call it the the three C's, the encounters that these data sets have. The, the three seeds are confirmation, contradiction, and complementarity. So confirmation is the kind of the old way, the oldest way we thought about how to to make, let's say, written texts in archaeology um, encounter uh, each other. And uh, that confirmation would usually take the shape of we're reading in a source something, we're going out into the field, and we're finding an archaeological site that matches what we think we ought to find based on the historical sources. So maybe we have a, a house mentioned by Ail Scott Lagrimson in Iceland in one of the sagas, and then we go, we dig a, dig a, um, a trench on that farmstead and we find a house and we go look okay we found ale's house so that that is the confirmation of that type of archaeology has its own pitfalls and dangers so we're not always going to get there and actually it's kind of hard to get to complete confirmation more often we get societal sort of the picture of general pictures of society we get those confirming each other from archaeology and text then contradiction is when it seems that the archaeology and the text or the archaeology and the science are telling totally contradictory stories. So what do we do? How do we understand that in the past if it looks like sources are saying opposite things? And then finally, complementarity, which I think probably is the most interesting. And uh, I think if we're going to push the, the field forward, it's thinking about how do we scaffold the different types of knowledge that we have to tell a more complete and interesting story uh, about the the past so that the book can be read as a as a methodological study too of of the past especially i mean the viking age is is proto-historic in in a sense that that most of the the texts we have are not from the viking age or not written by viking age scandinavians some rune stones and uh, very very short messages are really the only primary text that we have so it's proto-historic in that way so archaeology has a lot to to offer in those cases and and uh Obviously, uh, the lower classes are always shown better in archaeology, in my opinion. And then now we have the the new sciences. So we can we can chart population movements by isotopic studies or by ancient ancient DNA. So uh, I don't want to scare people off with too much method talk, you know. Uh, so it it can also I also want the book to serve as a as an introduction to to the Vikings, but it'll it'll each chapter will also let the reader if they want to figure out why i'm saying what i'm saying or how the conclusions have been drawn in the past about the, the different case studies that i use in the book i think it's going to have um you know something for everyone quite frankly that's interested in this subject because you've got different chapters that cover different areas of viking history but then within those you've got to me what appear to be like these case studies that you know sort of address these different types of sources that we all use to learn about that time and so there's there can be stuff like saga evidence or something so from the textual tradition or and then you've got the material culture from archaeological stuff and then like you're saying and people like super want to get their geek on they could read some of your your archaeology science stuff but then also the hard sciences as well and so um, I just think it's so interesting because so many times too, my students are like, well, how do we know? And 
or how can we be sure? And it's like, well, you know, and sometimes we we can't, it, we can only sort of get so far, but like, so you're, I think there's, there's a fourth C and I know you and I had talked about this before and that's like corroboration, you know? So, but I think it's complementarity, like what you're talking about too, right? It's just a different yeah. word. I mean, we, we need to use all of these and all have them kind of sort of coming together, sort of pointing in a certain direction in order to be kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. It looks like maybe we can conclude something there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that, um, that part of the reason I, I, a big part of the reason I wrote this book is because I feel like many of the the introductory texts will will make those assumptions and not kind of show the reader what's underneath. And I think the readers uh, are are complex enough to to sort of grasp that those those ideas. So that methodologically, I think it's it's important for any study of the of the past. How do we actually know? And uh, I think that's part of the problem in society perhaps today is is people aren't looking into the data. So I'm I'm really fascinated by 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 how the data is used to create these these narratives. Spoken like an archaeologist. <laughs> I know, I I know. I mean, so this is this is my I mean my first training is it's clearly archaeology. Uh but I spent a lot of time working with with old Norse and and with Latin, which are the, the two primary other sources that I'm using, uh, other languages that I'm using. Anglo-Saxon too, but the the there is an assumption that I'm making, uh, which I, I view as as optimistic, because uh, it it assumes that we can use the historical sources that we have, uh, and that we should try to use them. So depending on which intro to Vikings book you pick up, uh, people will prioritize different sources. Archaeologists prioritize archaeology. Historians will prioritize historical sources. But even within that, there are these types of sources. You mentioned the sagas. So the sagas are probably the best example of these these texts from the 13th century that reflect back on the on the Viking Age. How do you use them? They're not primary sources. Some people view them as historical novels. Uh, originally, they thought they were thought to be you know completely accurate for moral tradition. Then there was a pendulum swing where people said, well, you can't use it at all. They're just fanciful fiction. And uh, it is hard to use to use them. And some have some historians have chosen not to because they don't seem to fit sort of rigorous historical sources. My view is that we should try because they do. And we know this for sure. We can go into different examples. I mean, Lancel Meadows in in uh, the only Viking site we have in North America is a good example that was known only in the sagas as a fantastical area. And now through archaeology, we know there's at least one Viking settlement in what's today uh, Newfoundland and Canada. So we know that there are some historical facts and realities in these sagas. The question is, is how to tease them out. And part of my point is, yeah, it would be hard if we just use the sagas, but now we have these other windows into the past. We have the archaeology, we have the hard sciences that we can use to check the the sort of more fanciful stories, perhaps in the sagas, or or even the general societal depictions in the sagas. And and I think that by and large, by doing that, in doing that, I think uh, we can gain a lot. From the sagas that's sort of my conclusion i guess if, if there's a methodological one is like there's a lot to be gained from from going back to those written sources that we have from the 12th 13th 14th century and using them um, to understand the viking age 
Well, it's not just the sagas. I mean, uh, the, the, we also have issues with the historical sources. Like, I mean, I think the the my favorite example is is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle with the attack on Lindisfarne, and they say, you know, there are dragons in the sky and famines, and it's like, oh wow. So I trust this writer with yeah. nothing, and he's <laughs> just. Um, and so it's kind of sussing out that where's the fantastical element. Actually, I, just as an aside, I was, uh, I I listened to that uh, interview of Vladimir Putin, the one that's mm-hmm. making the rounds, and he just Putin decides decided to give Tucker Carlson a whole history lesson on the foundation of Russia and all that, and he starts back in 869 and just and as he starts talking, I'm like, oh my goodness, he is reciting the Russian primary con- chronicle like, like to a t and i'm like wow does he know that most historians think that that thing's completely like not not <laughs> real you know like right <laughs> like it so is, does it, does it, he it, go into i didn't listen to it does he go into sort of the 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 invitation of the Rus? it's exactly he talks about govern over the... came in and founded novgorod and kiev and he does wow. the whole thing you know and i was just uh, and I was watching it with my dad, and we were, I, I, and of course, my dad was, um, he he didn't watch very much because he's not a big fan of Putin. But I, I kind of went into the whole because we were watching snippets on French news, and I went into the whole, you know, well, you know, the invitation of the Rus. Last time I checked, Vikings weren't invited uh-huh. uh, <laughs> to anything. <laughs> so we probably, yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a very nice way of of saying they were, you know, uh, subjugated. How about that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we went into that whole, but it, I was just. It's funny how like just that lack of of you know um it's kind of like with the sagas we so quickly jump to their fiction and then the historical yeah. sources we jump so quickly to oh these are real because you know and, yeah. and only to find out that well they I feel like equally they need that same confirmation like you said that same corroboration right Western France is notorious for like the the Chronicle of Nantes which is where a lot of the information for the sack of Nantes is contained I mean it was it is so unreliable as a source, like just complete hogwash for most of it. And the only reason we think, you know, one thing or another is because like, oh, well, the Anadongudem say this and the Annals of St. Burton say that. And and they they kind of, you have to triangulate right. <laughs> events. You never want to stick to just one source. And that's the trouble with the, the yeah. early Russia is the Russian primary chronicle is the only thing they have. Yeah. Right? Outside of yeah. archaeology. I would have uh, little bit of that like and not too much um i turned it on then my husband's like i'm going to bed <laughs> watch this. <laughs> so i watched it you know just i don't even know if it was five minutes and um i i i know i, I mean i'm making probably terrible assumptions but i would have thought for sure that putin would have been an anti-normanist you know i thought he would be like in, in the i'm 100 slavic camp and then like the first thing he does is go right to the chronicle yeah. is like Dude, you do know yeah. that those people are Scandinavian, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, I am. Um, yeah, I, I that surprises me too. I didn't see it, but that that does surprise me because it's not my understanding is not part of the the traditional Russian nationalist story. Uh, but uh, well, that's interesting that it's now kind of been incorporated. I know that there's a lot more information coming out of Russia. You know, it's not just archaeology of of the Slavic villages that uh, that were the foundation of, of Russia now. These you know, Scandinavian entrepreneurs, you know, capitalist type, you know, uh, traders and merchants and and elite folks that are coming down up and down the the Russian rivers. So I, it's interesting how the national narratives can can be in flux like this. You know, I guess the 
the move out of the the Soviet explanation of the past has 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 caused part of that. I would imagine you know that that's not okay. It's a return to because I know the the I took uh, two years of uh, Russian political culture. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it, it was fun. We started way back yeah. with the Rus and all that, but uh, it's it's kind of a return to. I think this is intentional from Putin's standpoint. He want he wants to be the new czar, and yeah. the czars, the royal family, trace their lineage kind of like how in France the kings trace back to Charlemagne, in England they go back to, yeah, who do the English kings go back to anyway? Uh, yeah. the, uh, uh, William the Conqueror. You know, they all have kind of that right. foundational member that they're all descended from, right. and so yeah. they go back. They actually, I remember learning, and and, and maybe the the view on this has changed since because this was back when I was in college in like '05. Uh, yeah. But the idea was that the the Russian monarchy considered themselves to be descendants of the Rus, the ruling class, and not the Slavs. And I think that's where Putin's trying to trying to draw that line. Is basically he's trying to bring that back so he could, you know, in my mind, you know, he he wants to be czar. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the national narrative stuff is also functioning in the in the Viking Age. Yeah, I mean, he's a what did we trace it back to in England? Like Alfred the Great, right? Is is the one who's also kind of responsible to a certain extent for piecing together what we call the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. So even that's kind of a an an, an exercise in in semi-myth making. And to bring it back to your point, CJ, about, you know, can we trust these chronicles, even though they they have this kind of uh nice historical veracity to them in that there's a year and then there's some occurrences then there's another year and there's some occurrences if you're a story and you go ah look i know what year it is you know i can i can match it up and and then in reality they're going back and they're, they're making some some additions they're changing stuff around and part of the the story of the of of england right which of course didn't didn't exist in the beginning of the of the viking age by the time alfred gets his hands on it you know being the king of england for alfred and his his uh, his descendants becomes part of the message. So, like having one Anglo-Saxon chronicles is is helpful. So, I, it, I yes, I totally agree that the, even even the ones that look the most clear and most historical should be now absolutely should be checked and confirmed, corroborated with with what the other data sets available to us have to say. Well, we had that talk with um, Claire, right? Like, what was it about three weeks ago or something? With Claire Downham, and we were, <laughs> I, I uh, made it so that CJ couldn't get his Irish on too much because we dive into this whole issue of. Well, we will again. We'll talk to her again. But this whole issue of, you know, history is a playground, right? And we just kind of, you know, human beings have always done this. You know, revisionist history is not a new thing. People have always cherry picked and twisted the narrative to suit, per, you know, particular things that they need it to in, in the present, generally, um, and myth making and all of that included in it. But I think that it's sort of an interesting question to me then, too, about like the stuff that you cover in your book with now the hard sciences and everything. It's like, there are going to be certain things that you can conclude and that it can't really be refuted that much. And yet I'm just wondering how much human beings will still be human beings and say, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, that isotopic analysis, we don't care. You know, we still want whatever to be whatever we want it to be. Or if people will actually be like, okay, this moves the needle because we now have a new tool and now we really can know something for sure. I, this is one quick example that, that comes to mind because I was just reading this article yesterday. There's 3D scanning 
of, of rune stones of the the runes on the rune stones you know so people have been looking at these rune stones for for centuries of course right and it's it's the one primary source that we really have from the viking age written by the viking age scandinavians but there's still something to to that we can tease out there and especially with applications of of hard sciences so did 3d scans on on a series of rune stones in central jutland and what they were trying to do was to find out uh, if they could match the carvers based on sort of micro signatures in the way the rhythm that they were carving to, you know, across it. And they, and it, it pertained to particular people. So Thera is this famous Viking queen, right, who married uh, Gorm the Old, who's the father of Harold Bluetooth, who actually, re it already sort of came up as he's the, the one responsible for building the the circular fortresses, the Trelleborg fortresses, one of which is buried underneath Nunnebogen in, in central Wollensa. So she's mentioned in a bunch of rune stones. So she she is a very powerful person, a powerful woman, is in central Jutland. So her story of how she's wrapped up into the formation of the Danish state is, is, is also now unfolding a little bit more based on this research. So what they found was the rune stone in, in Yelling, the royal site, matches another uh rune stone also in jutland the hand does so it's the same individual who who has carved both of of these runes there was always a debate about whether the thira and the other rune stone was the same one at yelling but because of the same person and i got the they got the contemporary feel and they got the same person carving it calling her a queen so now they're pretty sure that it's the same woman who's mentioned right it just increases our knowledge of of how she played a role in 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 the power and the formation of, of the Danish state. It's a, it's a great example. We have all these narratives about about her and and supposedly one of the mounds at Yelling was supposed to be her burial mound. So even that the the assumptions about where she was buried is now coming you now being challenged a little bit by by looking at the at the the details and how the runes were carved. I think it's just uh it's fascinating. You know and Hadn't even crossed my mind that that was a that was a thing we could now document the sort of micro rhythms of of how the carvers work on rune stones. I just say every time you go like this, I think of the the Monty Python, the Holy Grail, in the castle of ah, castle of what? Yeah, it's <laughs> right. Maybe that's my Italian. I got to move my hands to tell yeah. the story, or else it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I want to touch on something um, I had a conversation with. So it, again, I'm in France and yeah, I kind of started the whole Viking mania here on the island back, gosh, 10 years ago. Um, well, I can't take all the credit, but I was definitely, I'm, I've definitely been heavily involved in kind of getting everybody on board with, you know, I wrote a couple of books and I'm researching, I got published in the local historical association. And, and so now it, 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 I, when I have dinner with, you know, family, they all seem to be Viking experts. And uh, it's great there. <laughs> and uh, I had one, we we had dinner the other night with one cousin and she, she actually did, went to school to be a historian. And uh, then now she's in social work, but she, you know, because um, I guess there's not a lot of money in it here either. Uh, but she, <laughs> she's, <laughs> I would think, but she studied kind of the area. And I, I brought up this, I, this idea of, you know, I've been frustrated with the, um, how little archaeology is being done here for that time period how little information gets disseminated from here into the anglophone world 
uh, I used to say, and I think it was rather incautious of me to say that, you know, the French French historians really aren't looking at this subject because they are. I mean, there are people and I got called out by somebody who watched the podcast. So uh, and I think that was fair to, to a certain extent. So there's just but there's, you know, the but there's still there's a compared to the Anglophone world, compared to Scandinavia. And when you think about this region being so rich in the history. I mean, Nomoutier was the fourth place they attacked, I mean, for crying out loud. And then they create, they put bases here and they tried to invade and they occupied it. And I just feel like compared to the, the, the Anglophone world, there's just a dearth of information. And something she brought up was, um, you know, there's a, the system here is different. And there is a, there is a, 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 a gap between the historians doing the historical research and the archaeologists doing the archaeology research and the literary historians doing the literary work. And that seems to be something that hasn't budged here yet. Yeah. Right. And once it does, it, it, you know, the floodgates may open and, and I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes, but uh, you know, per your book, since you're bringing in a multidisciplinary approach, I, how do you see where the Anglophone world is in handling that communication between the disciplines and what, uh, uh, you know, is, where, what stage do you estimate we're at generally in academia and the Anglophone world? And, and what are some challenges that still need to be overcome? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. And uh, I don't want to take on the, the French as, as you did. I think I don't go badly for me. And so I, <laughs> but I, I see, I do see your, your, your point. And uh, having worked in different parts of Europe, I see it very different. I mean, the, the traditions are so different in Europe. I mean, educational systems are different. So I work a lot in Italy now too, and it's, it's different there uh, as well. It is still much more text dominated. Yeah, you know, so there's you know this long history of archaeology being the handmaiden, so-called, of history, where archaeology rolled out to to prove something from the historical documents. I think we are past that point, and and that's not really done anymore. I think mostly, in, I think most people in Scandinavia, maybe even everybody really working seriously in Viking studies, wouldn't argue with us that Viking studies ought to be interdisciplinary. You know, I think the conferences that we have show that very well. Um, I wish there was sort of more discussion of the of the challenges of make of how we combine them. And I guess that's part of why I I wrote the the book because there's still people make each other uncomfortable in the way they combine the sources. All right, so I think that's that's the key now. Okay, we all recognize, oh, science is cool. We can apply some science and DNA works most of the time, right? And uh, satellites are cool. So I think the sciences have, have been accepted in. My worry about the sciences actually is that people go, well, science, so it's got to be true, right? There's some some DNA there, so that's got to be true. But they don't, we're not, those that come from history, perhaps, or archaeology, sometimes, not all the time, aren't careful enough to look through what are the assumptions being made in this DNA work, right? Okay, so if you're sampling modern populations, let's say in the Hebrides, to understand the settlement of of the of the island, okay, by Scandinavians, let's say, so that you got across a thousand years, populations have moved, of course, since then, and and that affects um, the data that you have. So without kind of peeling back those layers, you can come out with a with a, a an understanding that's not completely. True. I mean, this. So you've now talked to several 
British archaeologists too, but there was a, a debate, the peopling of, of the British Isles this is this big project with a dead DNA. And they, they basically concluded, you know, now I'm paraphrasing their research, I'm sure I'm getting it slightly wrong, but more or less they concluded that they couldn't really see an, an influx of Viking Age Scandinavians in the current British population. And they traced a lot of it to, to the Anglo-Saxon migration. So there must have been tons more Anglo-Saxons and not very many uh, Viking Age Scandinavians. So then some archaeologists in, in Britain really took issue with this genetic discovery of no, no influence. They said, wait a minute, if we look at where they're sampling from, you know, northern Germany was their Anglo-Saxon, uh, their Anglo-Saxon population. And like east around Copenhagen was their Viking Age population. So even where you sample your modern populations is going to have an impact. And then when the admixture of of genetic of genetic material happens, so the assumption in the genetic study was that admixture would wait a hundred years. You know, so then you get the then you get the uh, the Anglo-Saxons coming in and they wait for hundred years until they they mix with the Celtic and Roman populations that were already there. Of course, that's an assumption. And so what the archaeologists sort of pointed out was, well, archaeologically, we have tons of evidence of Scandinavians coming over. So it doesn't match. So that's contradiction. So if we look at it, you're like, this is complete contradiction. The genetic material is not saying what the, what the, what the archaeology is telling us. And actually, the historical mixing in the historical sources is almost even more confusing because there's been a long debate on, well, how many, how many people, for example, were in the Viking Great Army in the 860s? That came over to, to England. So, so um, this famous historian Sawyer, he says, well, you know, there's complete exaggeration in these numbers. We're probably doing like a couple hundred Vikings. So actually, then the genetic study seems to confirm what, what Peter Sawyer was saying, whereas the, the archaeologists are saying, wait a minute, we see a lot more evidence of this. So we still don't know. Right. There's still a, a fight about how many people, just even the, the basic numbers of like how many people are we really talking about? How big was the impact of the Vikings in, in England? If you look at, at France, right, you brought up France. So Normandy is, is the place that you get a lot of place things that are that are, are Scandinavian. But uh, that story has not been told either. I, last year, I read two different books about kind of the early formation of Normandy, and they were saying nearly the opposite. I mean, it, it was like they're not looking at the same past. And, and so that's, I guess, where I see um, a lot of work needing to be done. And so we're, we're, we're at a period now where we're being flooded with data from the hard sciences and from archaeological excavations. And now because the, the Brits have gotten, them, the, gotten their stuff together and they're working with, with kind of amateur metal detectorists. So all those, those objects that are being found by metal detectors are now being logged in the database. We can really see how widespread some of these, for instance, Scandinavian style ornament brooches and jewelry are across the, the English landscape. But now, we're, so we're getting all this data. Now it's time to, to figure out how we're gonna put, put it together with, with the more traditional narratives. So you have to match it up to the, to the written sources. As a historian, I have to say, you know, the written sources, like, <laughs> let's not, Put them into the dustbin of history. Uh, no, just, well, yeah, well, although CJ and I have had this conversation a few times, haven't we, on on the podcast about okay, how many times can you trod over the same written sources and come up with something different? You know that it is the archaeology and the hard sciences where the the new stuff is coming up. So, but you're right. I mean, the historians that kind of decided maybe Peter Sawyer is right that the the what's in the historical sources must be an exaggeration. 
but maybe it wasn't right so this is why it also is a is a good idea to go back to to check those assumptions you got to go back to the original sources and 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 i think that they the numbers we get from you know things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, maybe maybe they're okay. Maybe they're not as exaggerated as some historians thought. We go, oh, how is it possible? You know, thousands and thousands of Vikings are coming over. But these archaeological sites, like places like Repton and Torxay, which are 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 basically winter camps of the of the Viking Great Army, uh, they look massive. And there's tons of interaction with with the local population and i know you've had guests on probably talk about this already but they're like minting their own blundered coins uh the imitations of, of anglo-saxon coins so there's this like at least dual type of economy going on too with their they're engaging uh, they're using money so some of the earliest kind of viking age scandinavian coins are actually minted by viking folks hanging out in in england yeah the numbers thing in the middle ages is always it is, is always fun isn't it yeah it was just like talking with a student about um i had looked at I mean, it was the annals of saint Bertin again and um you know there was a, an entry of you know like 235 ships you know viking ships coming you know and they're kind of like how do they know that and then i'm like my brain you know, my literal brain is like you know a thought experiment like because there's a dude with a clipboard and a pen <laughs> on the side of the bank of the river going one right. two three four right, right. It's like, well, I don't know I mean, how they know it's yeah, 235. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes the numbers seem, you know, a little too good to be true. But other times it's like, it's pretty important if you're trying to defend a town against Vikings to know how many Vikings are coming. So yeah. counting the number of ships and estimating, I don't know, 30 dudes on each ship is probably a pretty important calculations to do. Yeah. You know? But yeah. then it could have been the chronicler who was like, well, if I give them an exact number, if I say it was about 200 ships, no one will believe it. But if I say 235, <laughs> it's too precise yeah. to be questionable. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I yeah. was just saying, just side on, you know, err on the side of it was a lot of ships. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I do like that you brought up that, that genetic study that happened in, in, uh, in England, where they they couldn't, they basically said there's no genetic influence from from Scandinavia from the Viking Age and whatnot. But it, my, it seems to me I remember seeing uh, some uh, peer reviews of that that were kind of kind of broke apart their their methodology. Yes. I think they published a caveat after saying, "Well, I, you know, after looking at it, it's not that we don't, it's not that there wasn't an influx. It's just that the Anglo-Saxon immig immigrants." We'll call them that the Anglo-Saxon yeah. immigrants and then the the Danish Norwegian immigrants were so closely related genetically that today we can't we, we weren't able to to sparse them out because I think this yeah. was done in the early 2000s when yeah the genetic studies were were still left a lot a lot to be desired right um, yeah yeah this one was pretty I, I don't remember now I'm showing some age here but I don't remember exactly when it I don't think it's that quite that old but it, you're right that it, it's getting better and better. So one of the key problems, of course, is using modern populations to reflect on, on past population movements. So we really need more genetic studies of human remains from the Viking Age. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's really what, what we need to kind of get around some of these assumptions about or charting population migrations based on current populations. Yeah, because the people, you know, we could, you can get, uh, go to a Swedish cemetery with, with uh, burial from the Viking Age, and you take their, their haplotypes and genes and whatever, and then, yeah, uh, and then, uh, you know, look at modern populations and realize, well, there's, there's a bunch of 
people with this exact, you know, in Switzerland, huh? I wonder how that happened, you know, then. Right. And so like these populations do move over time. Exactly. That's like the whole William Tell story, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, it's a bit of an aside. Yeah, because yeah, no. Kat German talks about that. I think it's in the River Kings book anyway, but just mentioning the whole, the DNA craze. And even for people who are just doing it for their own personal, you know, uh, you know, especially like Americans, oh, I descended from Charlemagne or whatever, you know, kind of thing. It's like, yeah. you, no, you didn't, you, you know, you know, you right. didn't. It, but she says, when you do the swab and stuff, it's basically the information you're getting is the, the mixture of people who are there today, not the people who were there a thousand right. years ago. And pe right. people don't like, you know, I think they just like the, the romance of thinking, you know, that they descended from Charlemagne. Yeah. And it's, I mean, exactly. So, so it's a DNAs is a perfect example of when it comes out at science that looks like, okay, this is verified because science said so, but there's so many assumptions built into it, uh, but they're, they're trying ingenious ways to kind of get around it or, or push it deeper into the past. There was one genetic study in, on the West coast of, in the Wirral Peninsula, I think where they were using only those who had last names you know, that were documented in the church registers from 200 years ago, right? So they try to get at least rid of the of the genetics from the most recent immigrants to, to, to narrow it a little bit. So that that's sort of, that's an interesting way to, to go about it. And those that can chart their, their ancestors having been there for, let's say, 200 years. Call me crazy, but I feel like I remember hearing something about genetic studies where they were able to use mitochondrial DNA to see where not like who you're related to, you know, today or, you know, or where they came from, but like to use to, to place your direct ancestry geographically because of the impact that environment, food sources, et cetera, have on, on DNA mutations and so forth. Like somebody was working on that. I don't know where it, where it ended yeah. up. But I remember seeing, reading something on that thinking, huh. That's really cool because then they could just trace it back and figure out exactly who you are, and where you came from, yeah. based on just the impact to your DNA that the environment of yeah. your ancestors had. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, the charting the the through the, the female line, of course, is where you get the mitochondrial and you get the Y chromosome for for the male line. So there's lots of potential there too, but but those some studies that make those great claims, honestly, I'm always skeptical. You know mm. that that you know. I, yeah, I think we need a little more more checking. My father's a, a geneticist and uh, does pediatric genetics. And he he said even in his field, when the genetics was coming out, they thought, okay, this is going to tell us everything. Like we're just going to be able to understand how humans work and everything about them and where we're from and where the sicknesses come from. And, you know, like 30 years later, you know, he's like, we, we know less in some senses than we did before. There are too many things about genes that are, are still still unclear. So and that's from a geneticist. So. Yeah, I feel like a, a healthy bit of skepticism is probably good, even for the hard sciences that look like they're always real. Yeah, I like the uh, the um, for Alzheimer's research. Actually, there's a there's a guy in Bend. I had I've had coffee coffee with him. He's a retired uh, researcher. Neuro uh, is he a neurobiologist, neurosurgeon? Yeah, but anyway, he did his life's work was on Alzheimer's from Switzerland. And he's in Ben. I was like, "What are you doing in Ben?" It's nice, but um, <laughs> and uh, he likes to ski and stuff. So, so. but he, uh, he he was telling me about how they for years and years they thought amyloid beta plaques were the cause, the cause of Alzheimer's, right? And because it's this plaque that builds up over time, and it's the 
and they thought this is definitely it. And then they found this drug that I forget what it was originally used for. It wasn't it wasn't one of those weird ones where it was like it's birth control that also removes you know like amyloid black beta or makes plastic hard. Um, <laughs> uh, but they found this drug that worked and it removed the amyloid beta plaque, and they saw no clinical improvement in the patients, and only to realize that okay. So they had this assumption for 30 years that it's the amyloid beta plaque. When they were finally able to remove it in people, it didn't work. And that goes back to your point on the assumptions we bring to the table sometimes where they're they're unfounded. And then something will come up and be like, oh, well, I guess we should have challenged those assumptions before we went gung-ho on this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, we've been attacking historical sources and 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 science, hard science. But archaeologists are making lots of assumptions too, right? And they they compound on each other. So I, I don't think that, you know, archaeologists also like to think, you know, ah, we you know we have the 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 data and the new discoveries. But I I think that a, a little bit of a humility from the from the archaeologists would be would be helpful at this point too. Well, and sometimes to your point, Terry, we just we believe what we want to believe, right? Like in our first episode. You talked about you had excavated, you know, this maybe perhaps could have been, you were very careful of, you know, uh -huh. the the, uh, the burial of of Egil Skallagrimson. And me, I just took it and ran and said, I talked to the guy who dug up Egil Skallagrimson. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. Because that's interesting, right? That's the other thing that we can't forget is that we got to tell cool stories. I, was yeah. like, I mean, as, as historians, archaeologists, it's just sort of to add something to to the world. I mean, it's a luxury. We're, we're doing luxury sciences here, in, in, in my opinion. And it's really important for us to to speak a language that makes some sense to to people. And I think we can really weave very interesting stories now with, with these with these data sets. And 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 uh, like your your example is so good, right? Because you can see how this this travels from, you know, some some scholars trying to be super careful and then maybe it gets picked up by by you know I don't know some kind of science news network right and then it goes to cnn and then it goes to twitter or something like that. by the time it gets to twitter it's like yeah i mean all of the the nuances is, is is gone and and uh that that's a challenge for for historians too i think to 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 be to to be concise enough in language to to talk to normal humans you know, and, but at the same time, not lose too much of of the nuance that we like to put in in the historical narratives. Uh, so they, when we published the article on on Ail's grave, we didn't say Ail's grave exclamation point. It's Ail's grave question mark. Of course, you know the question mark disappears pretty quickly from. from That's from because the, of what we've been news. talking about. That's because people want what they want. They don't care. Yeah. I want to believe. Yeah, <laughs> I even said that in Anders. Remember in Anders' uh, interview when we were talking about the story of the Christmas saga and how Iceland becomes Christian, and Anders goes, "It's a really good story." I'm like, "But I want it to be true." <laughs> yeah, well, it's such yeah. a good story. I need it to be real. <laughs> yeah, he's a good example of a, of a skeptic. At least some of the stuff that that I've read, I would say, you know, too skeptical. In some in some in some ways, right? The skepticism about you know things like berserkers or blood eagle, where where some people go, ah, it's not possible. I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe it did, right? How do we know that's not? I mean, it sounds kind of wild, but until we have a better narrative, I guess my feeling is, Christy Saga, until we have a better narrative for it, then why not, right? And um, so maybe that's too optimistic of me, but I I really think that uh, that the 
a lot of those historical narratives, right? I think that they they had ways to tell stories that uh, that we've lost to a certain extent, right? With the information sharing that we have and the social media and the books and written culture, right? Without that, we got to think of, of the Viking Age as information is incredibly important. I mean, that means everything. How do they know where to go? How do they know what resources to exploit? How do they know where to, to trade and where to raid and where to settle? I mean, information is the key. They're not right. They're not bringing a stone and hey, I'm going to do my hand thing again. <laughs> they're not going to do the, uh, the, you know, bring a runestone along or bring even, uh, we don't think at least, uh, that they're carving maps or carving, um, say, messages too much in 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 wood and transferring stories like that it's all oral culture and so i i, I really believe that uh that there were people that were very very good at remembering and storing information in oral tradition maybe so that yeah, I think there's all the humility oh, go ahead cj oh that was it that's all i had to say yeah <laughs> <laughs> but what you said earlier, the humility, I mean, uh, yeah, this is an important thing for me. I've written about it in other places, too, that I just think, well, A, we need more of it in the world. Um, but B, the the sort of idea, you know, that people get with linear progression of time and that somehow because we're later in the chronology and we have the ability to gather different types of data, that that, that means that we're smarter and better, Um and, you know, like I've probably said before on this podcast, I mean, I think challenge my students, like if I plunked you into the Viking age, you'd probably be dead within a week because you don't know how to do anything. You don't know how to, like you take for granted so much stuff, you know, and, and we've lost a lot. And so, but, but we still tend to kind of look, look down on those people as though they were stupid or something. And, you know, I don't know, but it, the, the, the line, getting back to what you just said too, like with Anders and who others, you know, it's like skepticism over here versus not looking at all and just continuing to repeat the same whatever. Because we've talked about that, right? What was it with William and Rayner or whatever? You know, where it's like, you know, we just sort of re the, the scholarship concluded something, and then everybody just kind of repeats that for a long time, and and then then. The, because I had another colleague at one point, because we teach these, you know, in, in our lower division courses, you're sort of teaching kind of these same surveys a lot and a lot and a lot. And then she said to me at one point, do you ever wonder, like, why we keep teaching the same thing, like how we know what we know as though, we're like, somehow we forgot it or we didn't even really know it. But somebody, we read it somewhere and then we just sort of keep saying it and you just sort of perpetuate potentially yeah. the myth or whatever. Right. You know, so we're the, there's got to be some healthy sort of middle you know, between being ultra skeptical, but also between just sort of blindly kind of perpetuating the same story that yeah. we've sort of believed for a long time. Yeah, to me, that's what makes the Viking Age so fascinating. I think, I mean, there for several reasons why I'm sure you guys have explored this on many of your podcasts. Why do people want to read about the Vikings? Why, you know, these Viking and Scandinavians are, are interesting. And I think that part of it is, of course, the sort of, human spirit of exploration and going beyond your your homelands and finding new lands and probably the violence helps too but then there's uh there's also this thing that they're mysterious in a way i mean clearly we know who they are so they're not that mysterious but there is still mystery in it there's still things to learn things to discover and things that we're not really sure of and and there's uh so i i'm very optimistic about the the field in general because I, I think that we just keep we keep kind of rewriting some of these things. And some of these, like you said, the traditional narratives that we've been repeating, 
just that some of those are even being challenged. Like that article that I read yesterday about the, the runestones, they were saying, well, maybe uh, in that mound and yelling, it wasn't Gorm's burial. Maybe it was Tira, the queen who was buried in there. And I said, this is a, a narrative that's been woven for a couple of decades now and kind of been accepted. But it's it's being drawn into question because they're applying new sciences and reinterpreting the oldest of all the primary sources, the actual rune stones, you know, that that even in the Renaissance, they were looking at these and trying to interpret them. So for the 1500s, so I, I just think, yeah, I think it's great. A lot of potential. Well, and to bring it back to uh, Vladimir Putin, because that is the... <laughs> That's what we this. Um, well, back to this this idea of to using using history as a, a means to shift the national narrative, foundational narrative. Yeah. Tree. I have a whole PowerPoint, and this is the one that I gave um, at uh, the public library in in Bend. Also, um, I touched on it briefly when I was at Onzi, just for just for giggles. Um, and it's the this this idea that the study of the Viking Age emerged during a time period where we had a lot of revolutions and the formation of national narratives because before it was like okay we have a king god appointed the king end of story that's why we believe in the king right uh and then now you have these nascent democracies that have a vested interest in telling a narrative to stir national sentiment to support the government right they need legitimacy and so the as as people started uncovering the Vikings in the 19th century, so too were new nations, you know, emerging. Uh, France, a big one, I think England to a, a significance. They didn't have a big revolution, but you know, he had a shift more power toward parliament and away from the monarchy kind of thing. And so you just see this theme where they Vikings end up getting roped into these national narratives for, with with very specific roles. And a lot of the myths that we still tell ourselves today about them emerged as a product of those. And it's interesting that now, because we have the tools to actually figure out who these people were and what they were about, and we're starting to, you know, pull that back. I think that story is as fascinating as, as you know, figuring out who the Vikings were, understanding how we interpret, how we create and interpret history and then change it over time. Yeah, no, I, I think you're... You're spot on. And like the reception history of the Vikings is is a field that we can do a lot more on. And there's, of course, there's a very dark side. I mean, I, I've looked a little bit into to kind of the idea, neo-pagan type of ideas, some of which are, are, are fine and some of which are really dark. And especially how that culture works in prisons. You know, so there's being received, even in the United States, this is being received in a certain way and being reinterpreted. They're finally now finishing the uh, the Alsatru a temple in Iceland, the new the new temple for the belief in the old gods. I've been these there. things are you've been there, right? So they but they're opening it now in stages. They've been planning it for so long, and they've got all these these ideas of of how it's going to work. Of course, that temple has, in my opinion, very little to do with the the temples uh, that we know of from from the Viking Age. At least they look very very different. I shouldn't say they have nothing to do because they have something to do with it, of course. But they they look very very different, and they're not you know focused on blood sacrifice of, of of animals and shedding of blood and these kinds of things uh so it's super fascinating and the history i mean the viking age was a, has been held up as this golden age for scandinavian countries to bring it back to what cg was talking about like this is the glory days of the of the scandinavians you walk around reykjavik you know who do you see leif erickson and things like that or or uh, the, the first settlers of, of Iceland, 
and uh I, it's just you know if you go on the tourist streets in copenhagen at once you see the little viking guy you know and different posters I mean, it's it's being held up as this this time where where they had their greatest achievements maybe the biggest impact on on the world um, in, in their past in these small scandinavian countries which is interesting because they left <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah well if it's so, if it's so great when do they all leave <laughs> yeah. I, I okay so now i have to say so inside my danish passports right you open the danish passport on the the back the inside of the cover is the the image the first image of crucified christ in the north on the yelling runestone carved let's say probably in the end of the the 960s or something like that in in denmark then you flip through all the other pages and on the top uh, right corner of every single page is this this old pagan style scandinavian lion slash dragon looking monster with a snake wrapped around it that's on the other side of the of the uh the yelling moonstone so it, even just in this the the ultimate symbol let's say of national identity that we carry around as people in there, it's it harkens immediately back to the Viking Age and the Christianization, but also the pagan past. Yeah, I just, I mean, so it, it, the nation state is totally wrapped up into messages that were disseminated, that were royal propaganda, nations, nation building propaganda already in the Viking Age. That's interesting. I show uh, my students the picture of the Danish passport for that reason uh, when I talk about yelling and, and all of that. And uh, also, um, you know, back whenever years ago when I was started putting this stuff together and um, I read an article where evidently I think it was maybe in the early or mid 90s or something but there was someone a Danish person who actually challenged the government over the inclusion of that imagery on the Danish passport because the one is like the gripping beast right which is a traditional you know sort of pan-germanic you know type of art style but the other one, even though it has some of that interlace and, you know, braiding and whatever, but it's Christ in the middle of yeah. it. And it's kind of like eh, separation of yeah. church and state. We're a modern country now, you know, so and then but then the Danish government like didn't back down. They're like, yeah, sorry, this is a really important part of our history and our heritage. So it stays, which yeah, I thought was. I don't think any of the Scandinavian countries have separation of church and state. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the taxes flow to the, to the national churches for, for better, for worse. And um that's just yeah. that's I think that's part of the the reality. I think the Christian identity is still still really wrapped up into into it. Um that Christ that you, you show though, if the if any watchers haven't seen it, they should go look at the yelling, yelling Christ, because he's not like a you think, okay, how would Vikings deal with the suffering Christ on the cross? That's not how he's depicted. He's like looks like he's yeah. he's 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 buff. He's about he's at least busting off the 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 cross, you know. And and he's got these swirls, like you say, around him. Some people have even held it up as as a, an example of, of syncretism, perhaps. And it might even, yeah. some people say, that it could even be uh, a mix of, of Odin being hung from the world tree and 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 Christ. Um, that, that's, that's interesting. I don't know if we're ever going to figure that one out. But it's an interesting idea. Makes sense, I think. The syncretism, anyways. I mean, it's very, very clearly. I mean, you've got a Christian, you get clearly Christian iconography there. It's it's Jesus. Right. <laughs> and yet he's surrounded by all of this interlace um design that you see on the Osberg ship, the Ornest Stave Church. I mean, it's like yeah. from beginning 
from beginning to end, literally, of the Viking Age. That's the style that you, that's prevalent everywhere. So, yeah, um, no, I, I think that I see the just to continue a little bit on that runestone because it's such a good example of of hybridization, syncretization of religious systems and styles, all within uh, propaganda of the state. So there's there's a Harold Bluetooth has this carved on on the third side of this runestone that he united essentially all of Denmark, conquered part of Norway, and made the Danish Christian. So a huge nation-building um, statement. So he's doing it in, you know, Scandinavian language with runes, not the Latin alphabet, right? So it's still made, it's still written in runes. But and most of the time in in on runestones, you'll have it have the the messages flow from from starting down from below and going up and then going back down. So they'll flow like this, or they'll maybe go around the runestone. So Harold's very careful to have his runestone like left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right, which which mirrors much more a written book in the Latin style, right? Where the books are starting to come in. I think it's a purposeful, and I'm not the first to say this, the emulation of the style. Again, mixed, even the way that it's written on the stone, it's emulating uh, the, the the Christian Latin way of of presenting script. So total mix, you know, right at this at the, the time that the state is, is coming into being and being Christianized. Yeah. So I mean, that's the other reason, I guess, for the golden age that that these uh, Viking age scene is the golden age. It's the the time period from which emerges the nation states of Denmark, Norway, Sweden, whereas before it's you know disunited chieftaincies. Right. Yeah, that's what Anders said too when we were asking, like, sort of what's what's the lasting legacy, and he said, you know, the three monarchies that were created, you know, still exist there today and in denmark they just had the passing of the baton there right this last i, I know I now know we have that, what king frederick the 10th that was that it, it was a big bit of a moment for me i mean she's been the queen since i've been alive of course and she's been around for so long and uh, of course on all the currency and things like that because denmark's refused to take the euro right so we still have those national symbols on the on the coinage yeah so um, with this book, and you know, you know, we've had a lot of conversations. I'm forever trying to like entice you back to Iceland. <laughs> back into, I mean, this is you and the Viking part of you, but you know, as some of our um, audience knows too, I mean, we've had other posts about your work um, and I have on my personal Substack about you and the work you've been doing in Italy for quite a while now, since what, like 2015 or 16 or yep, something? Yep, that's right. That's right. And so do you do you consider your um, book to be the Viking book um, to be uh, the kind of the the closure, the end of a particular chapter in like your life and your career? Or is it something that you still might get back into a little bit more when you're when you're done having your little fling in Italy? <laughs> <laughs> My Italian fling. No, I, I really think that. I mean, so the the period in the Middle Ages that I'm looking at in Italy, it's a medieval castle. So I'm dealing with social power in the 10th and 11th century, which is what I dealt with in, in Scandinavia. So I see a lot of value. I mean, I, I am trained in the anthropological style of archaeology where cross-cultural comparisons are valuable. And this is all within the European Middle Ages. So I, I'm finding um, a lot of sort of professional and personal joy in working 
in these two environments and some of my my colleagues think i'm insane you know like why don't you just focus on one or the other but i i I, it, I find it refreshing to to apply some of the same methodological skills. You know, I mean, archaeology is a, is a tool set that we can use to 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 dig holes in multiple different places and learn stuff about the past. I really like that. You know, I, I do Italian and I do the Latin sources, so I I I found it not that difficult to move to to that other context. I mean, if it was somewhere I didn't know the language, it'd be different. Uh, but no, I don't think that the Viking Age is something that's at all close for me. Actually, most of my publications are still on on Viking uh, materials, and I will start another uh, fieldwork project. Um, start digging it again. I mean, uh, we're still publishing stuff on the Mossville Archaeological Project. I know you talked to Jesse Biak too, so that story is not even that story is still still requires a lot of work for us to get that published before we really start uh, doing more more excavations again. So I, I hope to have, you know, perhaps it's fitting for my my slightly schizophrenic identity with growing up with different cultures that I, I like, I find it uh, invigorating to work in two different contexts. And, uh, and it helps me understand the Middle Ages more holistically as well, which is another goal that I have. I I, I don't just view myself as a, a Viking scholar who's always going to just work on the Scandinavian context. I think the wider European world is uh, is something that I, I would like to engage more as well, not less. But I think that that's something we could do. Uh, CJ was talking about how, you know, French, what's the French approach? What's the English approach to these periods in the past? And in, in my opinion, the, those they're too siloed. I mean, just like the in the university, the departments are too siloed that prevent real engagement with interdisciplinarity, even though people love to throw interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary around. You know, all the hires in universities are still in departments. It's very siloed. I think, too, that the the um, for, for reasons relating to nationalism, some of the things we talked about and, and cultures in different nations in Europe, they have their own traditions. And and I I don't really want to be only in in one of those i think we could do more um to to go beyond our our um those national narratives and i people are moving in that direction so i'm not you know i'm not sitting here saying that every nobody is but they uh, i think we can do more to to move beyond that and i you know we become so specialized in, in modern cultures in general that you know i mean the italians think i'm crazy because i i work in 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 Scandinavia and there they they have art the archaeologists have a, a very regional type of tradition there's very few of them that even work with uh, beyond the borders of of you know like Lazio if they work there they, they tend to work within that because you got to know like know all the details about the pottery tradition and that, that's important to know but there's also some value in the, in the in the broader comparative perspective of course you need to have somebody who, who can on a project like a large project who can do all the pottery styles for instance but you know, the the I think the a lot can be gained from from more comparative work. So let's be real. The the Italians think you're crazy for working in Scandinavia because it's cold, the food sucks, <laughs> and they don't have any good wine. <laughs> All right. One of the last years I was in, I was working in in, in field, doing field work in, in Iceland. I was up in northern Iceland at Hola at a bishopric, and I, it was a terrible 
summer day, you know, gloves, long underwear, you know, pants, waterproof things, a hat. And I'm out there working uh, on uh, on a really cool building from, you know, the 14th century. And, um, but it's, it's dirt and dirt, you know, there's, there's turf walls. So you're trying to expose the turf walls and there's postals coming out. And uh, there were Italians for some reason got really fascinated with Iceland for, for a while. And they still are. There's a lot, a lot of Italians travel up there. And this, this group of Italians came down to visit the site. And there was a lot of, people, of us from different countries. And they said, oh, David speaks Italian. You should give them the tour in, in Italian. So giving these, this group of Italians this tour. And they all, they're all standing around like this, you know, like covering themselves up. And I'm talking, I'm talking. I'm really excited about this, this house. And at the, I get to sort of a natural end of, of what I was saying. And they kind of look at me. And the guy in front says, you know, you're part of Italian. You speak Italian. What are you doing here? So, well, you know, I'm mean, put the hands digging the site. He goes, okay, look, at my house, in my backyard, you know, there used to be a Roman villa there. If you want, next year, you don't have to come back here. You can come to my house, right? And I can give you, or you can dig in my backyard and find a Roman villa. You know, wouldn't that be better? No, I understand. You know, but I, so, so there is some element of, of, uh, of, you know, the archaeology in your backyard is always the best, right? And, uh, and because uh, you know it, and and you just uh, it fits into your your narratives and uh, these things that we want to understand. And so I, it is so different, you know, digging a let's say a, a turf house in the northern fjords of Iceland, or or digging a, a castle, you know, in in central Italy. They they're so different. But then also to think about both of those houses that I was digging, the one in Mosfell and the one that I'm the castle I'm digging now. From around the year a thousand, and you go like the material conditions that these two, two medieval populations lived in are so vastly, vastly different, but they still engage some of the same social mechanisms in, in social power. I mean, it happens to be I excavated a feasting hall in Iceland and, and I'm digging this feasting hall in, in the center of the medieval castle. And you see some of the same statements being made, of course, uh, with different material culture with different kinds of meat, with different kinds of booze, right? But they the, you can draw the commonalities. So that, that's one of the projects I, I do want to carry and I hope to to do in my career set set up enough parallels that uh, that we can have these these narratives cross over each other, inform each other. Cool. Well I I'm, I'll look forward then to the uh the Italian version of the age of when yeah yeah i i you know i'd love to see an italian version of of, uh, of that book okay so lastly though actually probably um uh what is the what is the age of wolf and wind explain what what that title yes. references to yes i can so it's of course the age is is the the viking age so what it's a it's drawn from a, a viking age poem bulespau you know the this the the sayings of the seeress or the prophetess and uh she's kind of foreseeing in the poem she's foreseeing the end of the world she's foreseeing ragnarok and she's describing the chaos and the the sort of energy of the time just before ragnarok before this great change happens and she says it's a wolf age is a wind age you know kinship is broken brothers fight brothers and um i always like that part of the 
of the the poem as sort of the the energy that is that is referenced to me is also can be can be seen as a kind of analogy to the Viking age. You know, this turbulent age where lots of change are ha is is happening and the states are coming into being. People are going beyond the shores. So and Ragnarok is coming. You know, so the big changes within the culture are coming. So that that's that's part of it. And then, I I wolf and wind. You know, wolf being one of the the animals of of Odin kind of references the 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 older pagan uh, worldview and the uh, the role the wolves had in in battlefields. Like they show up at the end of a battle, the kind of carnivores. That's why they were connected with with uh, with with Odin, who of course is the one of the gods of war and people go to Valhalla if they're they're chosen by the Valkyries in the battlefield so I thought it, it brought that image in and then wind is the 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 power that propels the Viking ships across across the seas and up and down the rivers and without that uh, wind energy without harnessing that wind energy with the sails and the Viking ships and uh, they wouldn't have done all the things that they did that partially makes it uh, appear to be a golden age for for scandinavians even today it's hard to row across the north sea <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right age of wolf and oars well that's probably a good segue too because actually in a couple of weeks we're going to have our second ever return guest and that's going to be Matthias Nordvig from the University of Colorado at Boulder who has just done a new translation of Voicebow of that poem um which I sent copies to both of yes, you. Yes, yes. Uh, CJ you're beautiful. This is waiting for you when you get back to Oregon. In the snow. In the <laughs> snow. Yeah, exactly. So um anyway, but well Looks like it's getting dark there in France, CJ. Yes, it is nighttime. I'm being called to dinner. It is my <laughs> grandmother's birthday. We're going to have oh. a standard French three-course meal. I'm looking forward to dessert. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, David, for, for coming back and talking with us again. And we we definitely recommend everyone read this book. It's a, it's a really interesting voyage through the Viking world. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on here again. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, Terry. And um, and um, I. It was a pleasure to write that book. Um, and and I. I'm really happy to see it out. So, hopefully, uh, it does it does well by those who choose to read it as well. Yeah.